Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this coming Wednesday marks the 45th anniversary of an event celebrating planet Earth. April 22nd is Earth Day. People in nearly 200 countries will take part this year, showing their support for protecting and preserving the environment. The idea for Earth Day actually began right here in the National Capital Region. The year was 1969, and in Warrenton, Virginia, at a hotel and conference center known as Airly, Wisconsin Senator Gaylord Nelson presented a vision, a vision for a national holiday to promote environmental awareness and stewardship. The very next year, the first Earth Day was held. In honor of the holiday, we're dedicating this week's show to the three R's, reducing, reusing, and recycling. We'll meet people trying to make good out of power plant exhaust. We realized this is not just big. It is big, 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 big. We'll visit the future site of an eco-district in downtown D.C. This area, it's about 115 acres, predominantly huge federal office buildings, which are not very sustainable. And is there a limit to what you can recycle? We'll find out. One time we got a bomb that someone had from World War II, um, and we had to shut down and call a bomb squad. So we have had unusual things come through here. We'll start today's show on the three R's with the first R, as we hear about hopes to reduce pollution in a rather unlikely place, the U.S. National Arboretum. The Arboretum's 446 acres in northeast Washington used to be farmland, but since the 1920s, they've been a living museum where the U.S. Department of Agriculture grows everything from shrubs and herbs to aquatic plants and flowering trees like cherry blossoms. But amidst all this natural beauty, you'll find something less natural in the form of red, black, and white signs posted throughout the grounds, like right here at the confluence of the Arboretum's two major streams, Hickey Run and Springhouse Run. Can you tell us what the sign says? Uh, the sign is Danger Raw Sewage. Indeed, as the Arboretum's head of horticulture and education, Scott Aker, points out. Unfortunately, we have some very good indicators that the mainstream that bisects the Arboretum property has raw sewage in it. That mainstream is Hickey Run, which flows across the Arboretum to the Anacostia River. And, you know, we've got eagles here for the first time in, in 70 years. Do we know if, if, if they're dipping into these streams? Most likely not Hickey Run, but this water's going in the Anacostia, so they are feeding their young eaglets fish that have some component of sewage in the water that they're living in. Bill Matazeski is with the independent nonprofit group Friends of the National Arboretum, and as he'll tell you, Hickey Run just doesn't look right. The water looks a little, um, oily? It looks like the signal of raw sewage unfortunately has sort of a brown green which is a combination of a little bit of sewage probably in it and uh, certainly a lot of nutrients that are oversupplied to the streams. So where is this sewage coming from? Well since 1911 pretty much bisecting the property north to south there's been this 51 inch concrete and brick sewer line above ground. Now you can smell sewage here you step down. Yeah you can. You can smell raw sewage. As we walk along the top of the sewer line, we keep looking down to avoid rough, jagged patches of crumbling concrete. And this is the new stuff they put in. And when you say they, you're referring to? D.C. Water. D.C. Water operates the sewer line, which in 2009 ruptured. Raw sewage flowed into Hickey Run for four days before the agency lined and repaired the sewer. But Bill Matazeski says he believes another problem exists. Some people have connected the sanitary sewers, either by mistake or to save money, into the storm sewer system. 
And so in order to find those illicit discharges, you actually have to go upstream and go underground and locate where the sewage is coming in and should not be entering the stream. D.C. Water spokesperson John Lyle says any sewage smell is likely leaking out from manhole covers. And he isn't aware of this type of illicit discharge in the stream. What he is aware of, he says, are the illicit discharges coming from the industrial area around New York Avenue, north of the Arboretum. The illicit discharges that I'm familiar with uh, involve auto shops or chop shops, that sort of thing, uh, upstream, where uh, oil, grease, gasoline, those types of things have gotten into the stream. As a result, Hickey Run is now the largest source of petroleum-based pollutants to the Anacostia River. But Lyle says his agency isn't responsible for that. What we're responsible for uh, are the sewers that run through the Arboretum, uh, which are more than 100 years old and were put there probably by the Army Corps of Engineers before uh, the Arboretum existed. Our responsibility is maintaining those. Which is why, back when that leak occurred in 2009, D.C. Water stepped in to repair it. It was repaired, then broke, repaired, then broke, over a period of about 48 days. That's Tommy Wells, director of the D.C. Department of the Environment. The incident required D.C. Water to negotiate a settlement with DDOE. The settlement would provide funds to restore Hickey Run and pay the penalty for violating the Clean Water Act. We hold them accountable. We make sure that if there's a spill, that they clean it up, and they remediate the area, and we want to know that for any damage done, that people are reimbursed for the damage. Negotiations between the two agencies are still underway, but according to Wells, in the meantime? We, of course, say, okay, what's the status? How much environmental degradation happened? And for the most part, there has um, not been that much of an elevated E. coli or bacteria and such. I don't want to tell you that it's pristine yet. I mean, that's my goal. But for the most part, it's um, actually within levels that are acceptable for an urban stream. Though not within levels that would allow those danger-raw sewage signs to go away, much to Scott Akers' dismay. We'd love to see the signs go down. This stream could be a huge asset for the Arboretum. Right now it's a liability. Not that raw sewage is the only problem. You've got those petroleum-based pollutants coming from New York Avenue. And even though the city spent more than $3 million on a kind of pollution trap right at the spot where Hickey Run comes through under New York Avenue, the stream is full of trash as well. So like that pile of stuff right there? That's actually a beaver dam. If you're a beaver in the city in an impaired stream, and it's amazing to me that they live in that water, but they incorporate trash into their dam because that's what's available. In brighter news, the Arboretum's other smaller stream, Springhouse Run, is being restored this summer. Its path will include a new cypress swamp and wetlands with native grasses and flowers thriving along its banks. Signs will be posted along a boardwalk, but not like the signs along Hickey Run. These signs will be descriptive and educational, informing visitors from near and far about the natural beauty of their surroundings. So we may not want raw sewage flowing through the streams of the U.S. National Arboretum. But in other contexts, the stuff we flush down the toilet can actually be used in a productive way. In fact, as Jennifer Strong tells us, it's being used to help power D.C.'s Blue Plains Wastewater Facility, the city's largest consumer of electricity. 
Here's the first thing you need to know about wastewater treatment facilities. They use a ton of electricity. They use more electricity than any other need in your city. That's Patrick Surface, executive director of the American Biogas Council. The wastewater facility in D.C. uses 26 megawatts of electricity. Put simply, it takes roughly as much electricity to run D.C. water as it does to power 26,000 homes. The good news? Surface says the solution to these energy needs, or at least part of it, is right in front of us. We have a great resource in this organic material that we flush down the toilet. D.C. Water is one of the nation's largest sewers. It services much of the capital region, including portions of Loudoun, Fairfax, Montgomery, and Prince George's counties. To put it another way, D.C. Water treats enough raw sewage to fill RFK Stadium every single day. Lauren Fillmore is a senior program director at the Water Environment Research Foundation in Alexandria. D.C. Water, at its size, is at the very top end of this, if not the largest plant, very close to the largest. And because of that, it has a lot of opportunities as well as issues that they have to deal with in managing all that water that comes 24-7. Among those issues, the wastewater it treats has to be clean enough to be released into the Chesapeake Bay watershed. Plus, something has to be done with all of the solids. Enter Chris Piot. I use it on my garden. I grow herbs and tomatoes and things for my family, and I love my family, and I feed them to my family. It's an asset that we should really make use of. Piot is the man behind a variety of innovations at D.C. Water, including compost and fertilizer programs and the world's largest thermal hydrolysis digester. That's what's producing all of that renewable power from sewage. His analogy for how this system works starts with eating dried beans. Our stomach acids and the microbes in our stomachs would figure out a way to extract some of the energy out of it, but most of the energy would pass through with our solids. (laughs) But if we put it into a pressure cooker, got it all soft, and then mashed it up with a fork, we'd be able to extract a lot more of the energy out. And that's what this process does. It prepares the food for the microbes and the digesters. Patrick Surface says it also kills any harmful pathogens in that final product that Piot puts on his garden. So it both makes the solids that you take out of it that you can use in your gardens, it makes them safer, but it also produces more renewable energy in the process. So it's a a good system. What comes out of the digester after that energy-making process is blended with sawdust and bark to create a product that looks and smells like topsoil. doesn't smell like what you might think it smells like. Chris Piot. We think it's going to be a very marketable product. We are currently giving it away in the form of compost to our sister agencies and to nonprofits in D.C., but we intend to establish a market for this for sale to landscapers and uh, garden centers. Lauren Fillmore at the Water Environment Research Foundation says this kind of thinking is the future of water treatment. A lot of what people used to consider waste in the past really aren't waste. They're carbon and nitrogen, phosphorus there are elements and components that have value. The problem is is that they're not in the right location. They shouldn't be in a water body. They should be taken out and repurposed. Chris Piot says these projects will mean fewer rate hikes. It's cheaper to produce power with the new digester than it is to purchase it from the grid. Not having to truck the solids out of D.C. also saves money. And if that compost product takes off, that could even make money. I'm Jennifer Strong. After the break, turning greenhouse gases into algae 
and algae into stuff people buy. That exhaust that you see coming out of those stacks, if you could just envision those things as dollar bills, because that's what they are to us. That and more as Metro Connection continues here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. With the 45th anniversary of Earth Day coming up, today we're all about reducing, reusing, and recycling with a show we're calling The Three R's. Our next story is about a new way to reduce greenhouse gases. Slowing down these pollutants often involves retrofitting power plants with some pretty pricey technology. But what if you had a way to trap these gases that almost immediately paid for itself? Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson introduces us to some folks in Maryland who think they've come up with just the thing. Fang Chen first started studying microalgae a few decades ago. Back then, he had little idea anyone could see algae as a potentially planet-saving product. At that time, we will mainly study the taxonomy. We will mainly try to you know, differentiate different algal species under the microscope. Chen is now an associate professor at Maryland's Institute for Marine and Environmental Technology. A few years ago, a man named Bob Moroz, president of a startup called High Tech Bio, needed someone with Chen's expertise. He walked into IMET with a prototype and an idea. Moroz is a computer and mechanical engineer by training, and his prototype was a bioreactor. The main chamber of the bioreactor consisted of a two-foot clear tube with LED lights running down the center. I thought we'd sort of get laughed out, you know, we're nobody, right? But he said these are really effective bioreactors to grow algae. Chen ordered half a dozen of Moroz's bioreactors for his lab, and Moroz asked for something in return. He wanted Chen to find a strain of algae that could survive and thrive while gobbling up high concentrations of greenhouse gases. Algae, like its cousins in the plant kingdom, has the ability to digest carbon dioxide, the dominant greenhouse gas contributing to global warming. Algae can do that, particularly for microalgae, can do this very efficiently, more efficiently than tree than other plan. After about six months, Chen and his students found one such strain, one that occurred naturally in the Chesapeake Bay. He strolls over to a corner of his lab where several large beakers bubble with green liquid. This is the strain that we provide to high-tech bio. This is a strain called HTB1. It actually stands for high-tech bio strain one. It just so happened that that strain had never been isolated before. So we got to name it. Rose wanted to capture carbon dioxide, usually released by power plants and landfills and other industrial facilities, and use it to grow algae. Algae can then be sold for use in all sorts of products, such as biofuels, nutritional supplements, and food additives. He says at first it was algae's potential as a biofuel that interested him. But soon he started thinking that those greenhouse gases digested at the start of the process were the real story. When I found that it takes two tons of CO2 to make one ton of algae, I sort of forgot about this biofuel thing. I said, why aren't we using this to clean up the atmosphere? 
Hitech Bio got a $250,000 grant from the state to try this technique at the methane-emitting Back River Wastewater Treatment Plant in Baltimore. Back River takes municipal waste and isolates the water from solids. It then treats the water and pumps it back into the river. Special bacteria then digest the solid waste, leaving only methane gas behind. The plant then uses the methane to generate power, three megawatts of power to be exact. They almost have it right. They've almost closed the loop. When they burn the methane, they burn shoot all of this exhaust gas, which is full of CO2 and nitrogen oxides in the atmosphere. And that's where we come in. The high-tech biofacility at Back River is still essentially an experiment. But it's an experiment that's worked well enough that the city of Baltimore has already asked Moreau's to scale up. High-tech is currently using 10% of the greenhouse gas emissions at Back River, but is now working on capturing 100% of those emissions to use for algae production. Algae eats all the CO2, all the nitrogen oxide, and the only thing that comes out of our bioreactor tanks is photosynthesis pure oxygen and lots of algae. Rose's idea wouldn't be nearly as promising if the end product wasn't valuable. But HTB1 is high in lipid oil as well as lutein and zeaxanthin, two ingredients popular in nutritional supplements. Moreau says HTB1 powder could sell for well north of $40 a pound. Vincent Scarfo is his longtime friend and business partner. He says all this might sound too good to be true, but high-tech's pitch to municipalities will be simple. There are a lot of different technologies out there companies out there racing to get to some sort of climate mitigation. And uh, this is the first one that I've seen that actually not only pays for itself, but provides the end user a revenue stream thereafter as well. At Back River, Hitech is currently constructing three 20-foot-tall bioreactors. Each will hold 1,800 gallons of algae culture. That sounds like a lot, but remember, Back River's generation facility only produces 3 megawatts, or 3 million watts, of power. An average coal-fired power plant produces 500 million watts of power and emits a lot more greenhouse gas. Once again, high-tech president Bob Moroz. One 500-megawatt power plant, if you mitigate that 100%, you're looking at 7,000 tons of algae a day. Hitech is now about six to nine months away from bringing its product to market. Questions remain, such as what happens to the algae market if more and more municipalities start producing it in large quantities. But if Moreau's and Hitech Bio can provide the right answers, a lot of cities and towns across the country could be seeing a lot of green in more ways than one. I'm Jonathan Wilson. You can see photos of high-tech's bioreactors and that HTB1 powder Jonathan mentioned on our website, metroconnection.org. Another way to reduce greenhouse gases? Growing more plants. D.C. has a rich farming tradition, dating back to early African-American communities that grew food out of necessity. But in recent years, as the city has further developed, commercial urban agriculture has fallen by the wayside. Zoning laws have become less farmer-friendly, and land has become harder to find and afford. But as Lauren Ober tells us, thanks to new legislation passed by the D.C. Council and signed into law by Mayor Muriel Bowser, that's likely to change. D.C.'s rooftops probably aren't something you give a whole lot of thought to, unless, of course, you live in a building with a sweet terrace or a pool on the top of it. 
But Jeffrey Prost Green and his crew at Uptop Acres, a new farming enterprise in the city, think a lot about rooftops. It's where they see the future of food production in this urban enclave. Land prices are astronomical in, in urban areas, but, you know, and especially for agricultural purposes. The soil usually isn't very uh, in very good condition. There's sometimes a lot of heavy metal contamination. And so th- that is the reason that we look to the rooftops for farming. I'm standing with Prost Green and his business partners on a 3,000-square-foot downtown roof that will soon be home to a farm. If all goes well, that farm will provide produce and herbs to a number of high-end D.C. restaurants. We can't say which building just yet, but Christoph Grinna, the company's farm manager, says come mid-May, there will be a farm here. It's going to resemble, you know, sort of a a garden. It's going to be soil-based, and that's because we want to use it to retain stormwater as well as growing food. The folks at Uptop Acres have big plans for rooftop farms in the nation's capital. And they're hoping new legislation in the city will help them along. In December, the D.C. Council passed the D.C. Urban Farming and Food Security Act of 2014. Lily Rosen of D.C. Greens, an advocacy organization focused on local food policy, says the legislation is intended to make it easier and more economical to farm in the district. We are very excited about the legislation. I think it shows the city's commitment to including food as a part of its urban development plan. Rosen says the new law does a few things. First, it charges the city with identifying parcels of land that can be used for urban agriculture, vacant lots or blighted properties. Once that land is found, farmers can apply to access it. It also allows nonprofits and religious organizations to lease their land to for-profit farms without risking their tax-exempt status. The other thing that it does is that it creates tax incentives for landowners to lease their land for urban agriculture. Now, in a city like D.C. with rapid development, these tax incentives are really what advocates hope will drive this legislation. Once the act is funded, which will likely be in 2016, Property owners will be eligible for a 90 percent tax abatement for property used for urban agriculture. The tax abatement is really the best way for farmers to be able to get access to land. Otherwise, as somebody who is leasing land or owning land, they would not be able to support being a farmer. The real push for this legislation came from Gail Taylor of Three Part Harmony Farm. She found property in Brookland that would be perfect for farming. But the two-acre plot was owned by a religious order, and if she were to farm there and sell her produce, she would jeopardize their tax exemption. So with the help of other farmers and food justice advocates, Taylor hustled to get the bill on the books. There are people who are very committed to farming and to providing access to food in this area, Um, and this legislation just provides them the tool to be able to do that. One of those committed farmers is Zachary Curtis, whose Good Sense Farm and Apiary has been in operation in the district since 2013. Curtis currently keeps honeybees and grows mushrooms at private properties around the city. But once the new legislation is funded, Curtis could expand the operation to rooftops or commercial spaces. And that access is critical for growing a more sustainable local food system, Curtis says. Should we just stop at a few vegetable gardens or should we be really thinking creatively about what land is for, what communities need, and whether we're going to sacrifice the possibility of having 
locally grown vegetables or locally grown honey or locally grown wine for a few more condos or a few more office buildings or something like that. Back on the windy rooftop in downtown D.C., Jeffrey Prosgreen is pointing out where the movable trays of produce will go when they arrive in a couple of weeks. He says he thinks rooftop farms are an easy sell, especially for developers looking to get some tax relief. But beyond helping property owners and producers, Prost Green says the measure will push the city to become a leader in urban ag. Uh, I think D.C. will be a model both in terms of the uh, rebates and incentives that are out there for people to capitalize on compared to cities where this model has already been in place for five to ten years. So maybe in time, D.C.'s vacant lots and downtown rooftops will be covered with rows of peppers, broccoli and squash that you'll be able to buy from the farmer on site minutes after that produce has been harvested. It's a reality in other cities and area farmers hope it comes to pass here in the district as well. I'm Lauren Ober. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, 30 percent of our country's total greenhouse gas emissions come from buildings. But our next story is about a kind of building that's so efficient, it produces just as much energy as it consumes. Megan Polly headed to Arlington, Virginia, where construction is underway for a school whose energy use is net zero. At 7.30 a.m. on a Thursday morning, the construction site of the Discovery Elementary School in Arlington is already abuzz with the sounds of heavy-duty machinery. Construction workers are hammering and sawing away. They've been hard at work for the past year and will continue work over the summer. Philip Donovan with VMDO Architects says the goal is to open the door to students this September. I can't say I've ever been on the construction site of a school before. All right, well... (laughs) First time for everything, right? Yeah. The school will be the first of its kind, a net zero school that is, in Virginia. So what exactly does net zero mean again? The way you get to net zero is um, you buy all of your electricity, and at the end of the month, you hope you've generated enough electricity to cover that. So at the end of the month, your bill is net, you have a net zero bill or a net positive bill. And we really think that this school is going to be net zero. The school must be open for a year before it can be evaluated by a net zero certifying organization. It'll have 2,000 solar panels and all LED lighting. There will be a geothermal well field made up of 70 different wells underneath the school's playing fields. I guess you could call it a teaching tool or a learning laboratory. That's John Chadwick, assistant superintendent for facilities and operations for the Arlington Public School District. He's an architect himself and helped select the VMDO architecture firm for the project. And it was actually the team that we picked that said that they thought that this building could be a candidate for net zero energy. So they really brought that to the table. We had very high standards for sustainability, but we hadn't actually considered going that far. He says building a school to be net zero from the ground up is much easier than making a net zero addition to an already existing school. Discovery is also being built in a time when Arlington is grappling with a limited budget 
and also limited land to accommodate recent growth. In the past year alone, the Arlington Public School District has seen a more than five percent increase in enrollment. So there are a lot of issues around how do you expand schools, how do you build new schools, how can you afford to buy land in a community that is fully developed.、Um, it's a very interesting problem. It engages a lot of people in、uh, discussion. That's the sound of students walking to class at Williamsburg Middle School, situated right next to Discovery. Aaron Russo was assistant principal at Williamsburg last year, but is now principal of Discovery. She's tasked with staffing the school before September. I think it's sort of your dream job to to be able to come and, and create a school. A lot of principals, when they walk into their first principalship. You listen and, and you sort of absorb that culture of the school. So building a culture is really exciting to me. And it's not just Russo's dream. Future students were involved in the naming of the school and are also helping select a mascot and school colors. As we have Discovery dinosaurs, Discovery dolphins. <laughs> I even think we had Discovery donuts. <laughs>、um, we also had something like Discovery disco DJs. <laughs> Um, and lots and lots of other names. Obviously, lots of rockets and things like that. But it's going to be really fun to further involve the students in that process. Russo is excited to learn right alongside the students. I think that will be fun, you know, to say to the students, "Hey, I don't know how these geothermal wells work either. Let's figure <laughs> it out." And there's a learning station in the building just for that. Once Discovery is open, Russo will be charged with organizing tours for the general public, so everyone can see what net zero adds up to for the school and its students. I'm Megan Polly. You've heard about Discovery Elementary. Now you can see it. We have images of what it'll look like once it's done on our website, MetroConnection.org. You can also find more information about what it takes for a building to qualify as net zero. Again, it's all at MetroConnection.org. In a minute, our vision for this street is to create an urban garden promenade. It almost is an extension of the National Mall. Transforming a sea of concrete into an oasis of green—it's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and with Earth Day approaching, we're calling today's show the Three R's as we take a look at reducing, reusing, and recycling in the DC region. We'll kick off this part of the hour with a massive project that hopes to bring all three R's to the heart of Washington by turning 15 blocks of Southwest DC, just south of the National Mall, into an eco district. I recently swung by the James V. Forrestal Building, headquarters for the United States Department of Energy. The hulking concrete structure is just across Independence Avenue from the Smithsonian Castle. Meeting me there was Diane Sullivan, a senior urban planner with the National Capital Planning Commission. That's the federal agency overseeing the creation of this Southwest Eco District. Seventeen federal and local agencies have joined up to get this thing off the ground, and when it does, supposedly by the year 2030, Diane Sullivan says this area around Lafont Plaza, you'll barely recognize it. So, if if the Eco District were here right now, where would we be standing? You're standing looking at a 
no more of a forestall building. It would be gone, and you'd probably see new federal headquarters and some mixed-use development right here. Um, and looking out Lafont Promenade, which um, we refer to as 10th Street, would be the spine of our district and energy water systems. And so it would be a wholly transformed area. And what are the bounds of this Southwest Eco District? The Southwest Eco District uh, is bounded by Independence Avenue to the north, 12th Street to the west, 6th Street to the east, and then um, it includes Banneker Park, which is at the end of L'Enfant Promenade, and um, just down to Main Avenue. So this area we're talking about and, and the area we're standing in right now, it's often seen as kind of an isolated part of the city. There are a ton of enormous federal office buildings. It's also been called a, quote, pedestrian dead zone. How did it come to be that way? Uh, You're right. It's about 115 acres, predominantly federal land, and exactly it is huge federal office buildings, which are not very sustainable. It came to be this way through urban renewal. This actually used to look a lot like Capitol Hill with a lot of row houses here. Those were torn down, and in its place, we built a lot of the federal office buildings that you see here today. In addition to that, you have the freeway running through it and also the CSX rail line. Let's talk about sustainability. You know, by 2030, you're saying that the Southwest Eco District will be a high-performance environmental showcase. And something I think is so interesting is, from what I've read, this project could add 4 million square feet of office space to the area. And yet you plan on reducing greenhouse gases by half, reducing energy use by nearly half, reducing the consumption of potable water by, by about 70%. All of this seems counterintuitive to me. How is it possible to build more office space and yet pull off all of these grand environmental reductions? First of all, the plan proposes to take down some of these enormous off-road buildings, most notably the building that we're standing under right now, which is the Department of Energy Forestall Building. In doing so, we can build at a much smaller pedestrian-friendly scale, and those buildings actually will have much more natural light, therefore not needing to use so much energy. And so this idea of an eco-district, we have uh, what's called a district energy system here, and without getting too technical, it could provide the heating and cooling for all of the buildings here in a much more sustainable way, in addition to creating energy at the same time through cogeneration. That is the crux of our plan for the Southwest Eco District, and that is what gets you to reducing our greenhouse gas emissions by 51%, even though we're adding 4 million square feet of development. And then, of course, these new buildings will just be much more energy efficient um, than what we were building back, you know, 40 years ago. I understand one of the first steps in creating this whole Southwest Eco District has to do with 10th Street. It's constructing this green spine of vegetation connecting the National Mall and the Southwest waterfront. I've heard it referred to as an urban garden promenade. What will this urban garden promenade be like and how do you plan on achieving it? So this is one of my favorite topics. I love to look at when tourists walk out of the Smithsonian Castle and look out up, you know, L'Enfant Promenade, and they just don't know what they're looking at. It is a total Sahara. It is hard to be there in the summertime. There are no trees whatsoever. And it is quite a large street. It's very wide. It's 150 feet wide of pure concrete. Um, So our vision for this street is to, like you said, create an urban garden promenade. It almost is an extension of the National Mall. And it terminates at Banneker Park, which is owned by the National Park Service, and which we hope someday will be a future museum or memorial. And what's really exciting is we have the Wharf Development Project right at Main Avenue already underway. And then you have Whispers of 
the spy museum possibly coming to 10th Street. And there's a lot of momentum now and a lot of people who care about actually making something happen. How that happens is going to be challenging because it's going to happen in phases, probably over a period of 10 years. I was reading the full plan online, and the document does say the plan is flexible but not prescriptive. So throughout this process, which will take quite a while, how do you remain flexible without losing sight of your goals? We are flexible, and you know, markets can change, conditions change, and we need to adapt to that. But I think the overall vision for this area is something that everyone has bought into and something that I think everyone here in their own roles will strive to achieve. I mean, can you imagine a new Department of Energy headquarters showcasing the best renewable energy out there to all of these people who are coming here? Millions of tourists. It seems like such the perfect place for them to be, if you ask me. That was Diane Sullivan, an urban planner with the National Capital Planning Commission, the lead agency on the Southwest Eco District. Don't want to wait until 2030 to see the Eco District for yourself? We have a sneak preview on our website, metroconnection.org. Our next story focuses on the third R in today's theme, recycling. The Environmental Protection Agency reports that each week, roughly two-thirds of the trash Americans throw away is recyclable. Yet we only recycle a quarter of that. So we could be doing a lot better. But when we do recycle things, everyday things like yogurt containers and pasta boxes, it's kind of a no-brainer. We toss them in the blue bin and every week they're hauled away. But what do you do with something like that desktop computer from 2004 or that jumbo jug of mystery liquid you found in the basement? Well, in D.C., that's where the Fort Totten trash transfer station comes in. Joe Warminski swung by to look at some of the unusual stuff Washingtonians recycle and find out where it goes. Shirley Toussaint is peering down at three 55-gallon drums at the Fort Totten trash transfer station. They all contain oily gunk. Okay, so the first one actually is is um, flammable liquid. It is flammable liquid, so it will be gases, mostly gas. A lot of people keep, tend to keep gas at home. I don't know why, but they do. So you can the, smell the, it. Yeah, you could definitely smell it. And then the second one is actually bulk paint. The third barrel is the least appealing. This one, I think, it's not cook. It's not uh, motor oil, but it's cooking oil. Because I was going to say, it looks like there's black chunks. Of right, stuff. It's exactly. Like from the bottom of the deep fryer. Yeah, or this whatever. one definitely is cooking oil. So we will keep that separate from the motor oil. Toussaint works for a contractor hired by D.C.'s Department of Public Works to dispose of what the industry calls household hazardous waste. So what fits the definition? William Easley is the recycling program officer for DPW. It's any product that you may use in your home that if you take a look at it and it has, um, like, it's flammable or it's poisonous or it's toxic, anything with those symbols on it, once you finish using it in your home, if you didn't complete use up the product, then you can bring the leftovers to us and we'll make sure that they're disposed of properly. Easily oversees not only the hazardous materials collection, but the e-cycling program, which is handled by a different contractor a few feet away. It's early, but there are already about 10 televisions, big glass screens, big plastic bodies, stacked on wooden pallets with other electronics. The TVs look like refugees from the 1990s. Even the thrift stores won't take them anymore. Sure, young man. Oh, man. 
Charlie Mann of the Chevy Chase neighborhood pulls up with a giant Panasonic in his hatchback. One of the DPW workers hoists it out. Did you have any particular attachment to that TV? Were you sorry to see it go? Uh, not very. <laughs> it's probably past its time. How hard was it to get it in the car? Uh, it was a challenge. I was about at the limit of what my wife and I could lift. That TV and all the other e-waste collected today will be carted off by the contractor Unicor to facilities in Florida or Pennsylvania. Once there, federal prison inmates will disassemble it and prepare the metals and other materials for recycling. In fiscal 2014, D.C. residents brought in 154 tons of gizmos. Chris Miller, who lives on Northeast Capitol Hill, shows up with a car full of all kinds of stuff. It stinks when they're semi-functional because you think, well, this isn't totally broken, but no one wants it. It's essentially financially worthless, so you just want to do something with it that's not too negative. The household hazardous waste goes another route. Shirley Toussaint's employer, Care Environmental Corporation, will pack up all the oils, paints, aerosol cans, and toxic substances. They'll go to a facility in Valdosta, Georgia, to be sorted for proper disposal. DPW collected 40,000 gallons of such liquids in fiscal 2014, as well as 62,000 pounds of solids. DPW says anywhere from 180 to 300 cars will show up at Fort Totten on the average Saturday. The city used to collect household hazardous materials and e-waste only twice a year at the Carter Baron Amphitheater parking lot and the Benning Road transfer station. But as people and our own understanding of how to be better stewards of the environment, we added the electronic recycling. That's Linda Grant, a spokeswoman for DPW. And then about two years ago, we started the twice a, um, sorry, once a week and that's been quite successful. So what won't they take? No medications. Pharmacies can help you with those. And you should definitely talk to police if you've got unwanted explosives. William Easley again. One time we got a bomb that someone had from World War II, um, and we had to shut down and call a bomb squad. So we have had unusual things come through here. He says accidents are rare, and usually they involve nothing more than a broken light bulb. So that chemistry set from the 1970s? Bring it. A half-used can of bug spray? Sure thing. An old mercury thermometer? Certainly. There's one more thing you can recycle at Fort Totten, but only on the first Saturday of each month. Personal documents. DPW will shred them for you. Not only will that ease your conscience, it might protect your identity, too. I'm Joe Warminski. Inspired to clean out your closets, cabinets, and cupboards? We have more about what the Fort Totten Transfer Station will take off your hands on our website, metroconnection.org. There are many ways to go about practicing the three R's, reducing, reusing, and recycling. And the man we're about to meet goes about it through art. The most popular works Baltimore resident Loring Cornish creates are elaborate mosaics that often incorporate materials he finds and then repurposes. Hans Andersen spoke with Cornish about how he picks his materials and what inspired him to be an artist in the first place. For a long time, Loring Cornish scavenged for art materials and inspiration. When I first started out, I used to comb the streets because you, I never know what I'm going to make, and I don't, I'm not looking for anything particular. 
I just find stuff that strikes me. So I used to find, find it all in the streets. I used to walk the streets looking for stuff, basically. Cornish is sitting on the back porch of a row house in West Baltimore. The front of the house is a mosaic of mirrors reflecting the houses across the street or people walking by. A few doors down the block, there's a similar house that Cornish also owns. He uses both as studios. Cornish is a Baltimore native, but he got into art when he was living in Los Angeles, caring for a friend with AIDS and pursuing a career in acting. He rented a house there. I moved in, and the place needed a little fixing up so that the guy had the workers in there working on the space. And I said, let me fix the place up. So I pulled back the carpet, and it was termite damage all in the floors. His friend taught him to do mosaic art, and he started covering his floors in different tiles. At this point, Cornish had also decided to dedicate his life to worshiping God through his art. The tiles were the first step in writing a verse from the Bible throughout his house in mosaics. It was a paraphrasing of Psalms chapter 1, verse 3. Then he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters, that his leaves shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. And that was his first art project in the house. And then I couldn't stop doing art in this rented house. I mean, I had... I had ceramic dolls all around the baseboards. I had crosses in the ceilings. One year I had like a hundred crosses all over the trees. At first, Cornish didn't prosper. He fell behind on his rent and was evicted. He eventually moved back to Baltimore and bought the row house we're sitting behind today. Cornish was going to cover this house in mosaics, but he had trouble finding tiles in Baltimore. So he asked God what to do. I got in my car. I'll never forget it. He said, go left, go right, go left, go right, go left. And I pulled up to like almost, I couldn't go any further. And so I couldn't go. I got out of the car and I looked up and the sign said Baltimore Glass Company. Sitting outside was free glass. Sheets of glass that they wanted to get rid of. So I started loading up my truck with glass and I came in and I started covering my floors with glass. Soon he covered the front of his house with mirrors. Cornish doesn't use as much found material now. He'll go to a friend's hardware store and buy glass but he's still inspired by the materials he sees around him. And a lot of materials that I use are universal. People are relational to them. And so when they see a piece of art made out of shoes, everyone is drawn to it because everyone wears shoes, so to speak. And Cornish says materials create unique connections, different associations. Cornish shows me an example of shoe art in his gallery. It's in the Fells Point neighborhood in central Baltimore. This piece down at the bottom actually reads Montgomery Bus Boycott, and it's made from all shoes. The piece is eight feet by four feet. The backdrop is entirely made of old shoes. In the foreground are the words Montgomery Bus Boycott, spelled out in new shoes. And it talks about how older generations are helping the newer generations um, from, from what they went to, such as Uh, sit-ins and marching. There are countless pieces made of glass and pennies, nickels, spoons. Cornish uses sterling silver serving dishes as frames. There's a bathroom filled entirely with old phones from Johns Hopkins University. This was once a small bathroom, but now it feels completely different with a hundred phones in the shower. You know, and it's those old phones, the phones that used to hang on the wall with the push buttons. And people love this room because it's, 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 it changes the environment of the room. And Cornish, with some divine intervention and the materials around him, will keep changing those environments. I'm Hans Anderson. Curious about Lauren Cornish's bathroom full of old telephones? How about his mirror-covered house? You can see both, along with other photos of his artwork, on our website, metroconnection.org. 
wrap up our show today by hearing from you and reading from your comments and messages about recent editions of Metro Connection. On last week's Ward 8 show, Jacob Fenston brought us an inside look at the public housing development Berry Farm and what its future might hold. A listener going by the name We the People 1960 was living in public housing. The development was rebuilt as mixed income. I was a temp employee of a federal government branch, the listener writes, but I was not allowed to return as a renter once the mixed income housing was developed. But I came back as a buyer with the assistance of the D.C. government and the United Way. I feel that the residents of the District of Columbia are being forced out. Last week, we also headed high atop a hill in Anacostia to visit Our Lady of Perpetual Help Catholic Church. Jester Nader heard the story and writes, The view from their parking lot is perhaps the best there is of downtown D.C. and the Capitol. And Kavitha Cardoza recently spoke with Ali Bakker, a D.C. public school teacher who left her job after experiencing major burnout. A listener using the name former DCPS teacher has a message for Bakker. Kudos to you for being there as long as you were. Don't be hard on yourself. Sometimes we forget as teachers that we are human too. Although our students need so much and we give more than most, we forget that we need TLC too. Do you have a comment or question about Metro Connection? Let us know. Our email address is metro at wamu.org or tweet us. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Lauren Ober, Hans Anderson, and Joe Warminski, along with reporters Jennifer Strong and Megan Pauley. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. That's metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. If you missed part of today's show or you want to listen to past shows, head to our website, metroconnection.org. While you're there, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast or find us on iTunes. We're hard at work on upcoming editions of Metro Connection and would love your input. We're planning an episode about life in Fairfax County, Virginia, and another on the D.C. music scene. Share your story ideas with us on Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News. <laughs>